Hey, everyone. Good to be here with you. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I say it every time, but this piece of my life where I get to study the scriptures alongside of you is honestly one of my great joys and delights, and um, so glad to be here together today. I love Romans. I'm excited about it, particularly I love how Paul's heart for the whole world to know the Savior leaps off of every one of these pages. And I have been thinking about, as I've studied, how Romans is a great gift, but it requires something of us as well. And I'll bet you intuitively realized what that was when you studied this week. We're going to have to work hard, and that's okay. We're going to have to read and consider carefully and slowly. We're going to have to sometimes tolerate, I think, being confused for a little while before it all becomes clear. We're going to read really prayerfully and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate and help us understand his words. And we're going to have to do that with a lot of, I think, gratitude and humility. I think we may need to read the passages a few more times than sometimes we're used to. Maybe pray a little more. Maybe be a little more patient as week by week we study at home. And then talk around our tables and then come here for the teaching time. I am completely confident that by the end of the semester, we will have grown some deeper roots um, into God's word and into his character because of this study. So that's why I'm so excited. Um, My own personal study, I will tell you, of this passage required a lot more time and prayer and patience, but there has been blessing in it. And I'm telling you the truth in this. When I first read the, the very first time I sat down and read this, I thought, okay, Oof. Um, By the time that I had completed my study, I had fallen in love with this passage. And uh, it's not one that you would normally think that you might have fallen in love with. This isn't Psalm 23, right? Um, But I love the truth that it has shown me how wretchedly sinful I am, that we all are, and how God's wrath... um, is a very real thing, and the truth is it has created in me this sort of renewed sense of awe and gratitude for my salvation and for the cross, and I hope that it does the same thing for you. Okay, well, we're going to dive in. God's Word is worth our time and our effort. That's a little bit of a pep talk. If you ever need another one, come find me, or I may need to come find you because there might be a point in the semester where I need it as well. Okay, when we begin in Romans 1.18 today, before we look at it, we really have to go back and look at 16 and 17 because 18 is a continuation of the thought from 16 and 17. And you may remember from last week that 16 and 17 are the key verses of all of Romans. And I did put 16 and 17 on your verse sheet, so you may want to look at that um, as we begin. Paul writes... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And by the way, you see that phrase a lot, and we're going to talk about why that's there in weeks to come. For in it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's 16 and 17. Let's go on to 18, and I'm only going to read 18 right now, where Paul explains some devastating truth about the sin of man. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The bad news is every offense against God provokes his holy anger. And we're gonna spend a lot of time on verse 18. Don't worry because we'll work through the other ones faster than that one, but it has some real key foundational truths that Paul states and then unravels as he goes. The first thing he does is expose this inherent truth that all men are sinful to the core. The second thing he does is tell us that God's wrath is set against that sinfulness. And now you know why I called it first the bad news. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. We are going to get there and we are going to rejoice in that. But before we do that, I really think it's important, and Paul did as well, to take a real good hard look at the bad news and be willing to spend some good time there, to make eye contact with it and to not look away because I don't know that we can really have an appreciation for how good the good news is until we understand how bad the bad news is. So verses 18 through 32 are describing a person who has not trusted Christ as their savior, but we as Christ followers have much to learn from these verses too. I think one thing is, like I already mentioned, a real... um, ability to have a a deepening sense of gratitude for our um, salvation, for that boundless grace that the Lord has shown us in drawing us out of that sinfulness and into his presence. I think another thing it teaches us is that it should drive us toward an urgency to reach those who we know who are outside of the faith and under God's wrath. Also, we all still struggle with sin, so the warnings in this passage do apply to us as well and and allow us to do our own heart check, which I have done, and the Lord and I have done a lot of work. You know, I realized as we studied, as I studied this, we don't talk a lot about God's wrath or judgment. If I did a word count of how often that comes up in either conversation or in study or teaching, my guess is it would be really low in comparison to some other words. But we're going to look at it very carefully, so I want to um, make sure we understand exactly what God's wrath is and what it is not. We had a good definition in our study questions this week. Um, That was God's holy anger against sin and evil. I think another good way to think of that idea of wrath is as his settled and determined and only response that a holy God can have against evil. And when we talk about God's wrath, I think it's also important to think about what it is not because God is wholly other than we are. And human wrath and God's wrath are not the same thing. So God's wrath is not, never can be, this hot, emotional, lose your temper, anger. That's a human thing. God's wrath is holy and right and good. Human wrath is usually sinful, usually wrong, and usually bad. Let me tell you a story. There's a man in our neighborhood who has the um, unfortunate uh, truth that he has a stop sign in the front of his yard. He's at a three-way intersection like this. He's right here. Um, 
My neighborhood's not very big. You can see for, I don't know, 14 miles around. It would be very easy for that to just be a simple yield sign here that we could all follow like the civilized adults that we are. For some reason, it's a three-way stop sign here. And for years, I have noticed that a lot of the neighborhood, including myself, sort of roll through that stop. Make a good yield, but roll through it. That man who has the stop sign in his neighborhood is always in his yard, it seems like, and he cares very deeply about obeying all traffic signs. And so he has often, and I haven't been the only one that's noticed it, he's shaken his fist and yelled and done this and that when people roll through it. I do try to always come to a complete stop now, not because I think that it's totally necessary, but out of kindness to him, I have learned um, and I'm not even think, I don't even think it's a regulation stop sign, if you want to know the truth. It looks kind of small and short, but anyway. Okay, so there was a day, it was during COVID. Let me say we were probably all on the edge just a little bit. My, at the time, 18-year-old son comes bursting through the door and running in the house. He had jumped out of his car. I saw him out of the corner of my eye from the driveway. And he had probably rolled through that stop sign, and that man had jumped in his car and started following him. And so my son just sort of drove through the neighborhood and was really scared. I don't think the man meant any real harm, but it was super not okay. He sort of drove through the neighborhood and didn't know what to do, so he finally just came home and jumped out of the car and ran inside. And when I saw my 18-year-old, almost grown man son, who was so shaken and rattled and understood what had happened, I lost my mind. And I said, that man can yell at me all he wants, but if he ever goes after one of my kids again, I will burn his house down in the middle of the night with him in it. And I did not realize what I had said until my entire family goes. <laughs> and I kind of snapped to it and thought, what am I saying? What kind of example am I being here? And that was human wrath that wasn't going to end in anything good. That is not God's wrath. And now he stops at that stop sign, regardless of whether he thinks he needs to or not. Um, but I want us to really think about that because God is God and we are not. <laughs> God's anger is never sinful. It is never unpredictable. It is never mean. It is never vengeful. It is perfectly holy. It is perfectly right. It is the right response to all that is evil. And therefore, God's wrath is a good thing. Okay, now we have to ask, toward what is God's wrath directed? It is directed toward all injustice toward others, toward all failure to worship and revere our living God, and toward the suppression of truth. If Jesus says, and he does in his word, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then suppressing truth is really a suppression or a willful pushing away of God himself and what can be known about him. Okay, that was a long explanation of verse 18. Now let's go to verse 19 and 20 and all the rest of the verses in light of what we know about verse 18. 19 and 20 are known as um, the doctrine of natural revelation. They're important. Let's look at them. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, that is mankind, are without excuse. 
Okay. I love uh, Dr. Thomas Constable has a great um, commentary that is available online for free, and he had this great explanation about this. He says, natural revelation describes what everybody knows about God because of what God has revealed concerning himself and nature. It is truth about God that is immediately obvious to every human being. I just thought that was so simple and clear. Also, a few thousand years before Dr. Constable said that, King David had the same truth. He said this in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Everything in creation is a wonder. And Every bit of it um, speaks of the Lord, and all of us are uniquely drawn to something in his creation. I um, love that if I asked every one of us, and you probably had a discussion around your table, what is it that you see of God in nature? We would often have different answers, at least in part. For me, this it changes for me, but I, I wrote down a list of what it is for me this week. I absolutely love elephant trunks and all the funny things they do with them. I've been um, watching on Instagram, the um, Fort Worth Zoo has a new baby elephant and they put him on there a lot and and I just love an elephant's trunk and I love watching geese fly in formation in a winter sky and I love how somehow migratory birds go back to the same little pond or lake thousands of miles away every year when I cannot find a store with Google Maps. That is a wonder of the Lord. I love um fields of flowers, and I love all of the colors of the sunset. I I just am fascinated by the human immune system and how God thought of that. And you could list so many more, but the, the truth is that all of creation speaks of a God who is powerful, who is good, and who is absolutely worthy of worship. In fact, creation speaks so clearly of that kind of God that ignoring his existence or attempting to explain all of this away in some other um, explanation that doesn't give him credit, the word says, is inexcusable. Now, can we look at a tree or a bird or an elephant trunk and see that God the Father gave his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross to take on our wrath? No. Creation does not give us that kind of knowledge. That can be known only through his word, and that is why Jesus gave us the great commission to take his word and take the good news to all of the world. But we can know that we didn't and couldn't create any of this, that there is a God greater than us, and we are held accountable for what we know and choose to ignore. All right, let's continue reading in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the created. So that foundational truth in verse 18 is the unrighteous suppress God's truth. What does that look like? 
it looks like this. And notice that progression and we talked about it in our study questions. First, we have irrefutable evidence that God exists and that he is eternal, powerful, divine, and good. Even so, people make the choice to ignore what God has shown them. And as a result of that, their foolish hearts grow and minds grow um, increasingly sinful and dark. Choosing to ignore what we know about God isn't the only way this happens. We also have probably all chosen to ignore what we know about God through his word. Purposefully pushing away God always leads to destruction. Every time we choose to push him away, the heart grows a little harder. It gets a little bit easier to do that the next time. It gets a little harder to discern right from wrong. It gets a little harder day by day to move back toward him and just uh, grows more and more natural to act and think and behave in a way that is contrary to the ways of God. And it doesn't always happen quickly. When the heart and mind have grown foolish, it becomes so easy to exchange the right worship of God for something less. And every one of us is prone to doing this. Um, the Gentile believers in Rome in the, um, that Paul was speaking to here came out of cultures that had um, uh, many false gods and many ways that they worshiped those false gods that were really just gross and evil. The Jewish believers that Paul was speaking to had the law from early on to, um, that prohibited idolatry, and yet they had a long history of doing it anyway, and God having to call them back out of that. Uh, the Ten Commandments speaks of this. Look on, with me on your verse sheet. Exodus 20. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then if you skip down, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I hope you took some time to think about your own forms of idolatry in your life this week. I will tell you the truth that I have been doing some, not for the first time, but once again, some good hard work in talking to the Lord about the things in my life, even the good things that I hold more dear than I hold him, the things that I spend more time pursuing than I spend pursuing him. And I have been confessing those things and I have been asking him to show me even the places that I don't see yet and praying hard to stop and to worship him alone. We all in one way or another exchange the glory of God and the truth of God for something that doesn't have any real and lasting value. We are all sinners in need of a savior. For the rest of this chapter, Paul gets real detailed about the nature of our sin. And as we look at this, it's helpful to remember that that early Roman church, like I just said, is this mashup of Jewish converts to the faith and Gentile converts to the faith. And because they had these very different cultural backgrounds, they were having a hard time coming together in unity. If you look at the New, the New Testament as a whole, unity of believers 
is very important. Paul speaks about it here. I think he's working throughout the book of Romans to bring the Roman church together in unity. And he also mentions it in other letters, so I know it was an issue with other um, uh, early churches in the New Testament as well. So part of what he's doing here in this list of sins, and I'll just briefly mention it, is trying to help all of them understand how equal they are at the foot of the cross. So the first and long list of sins Paul mentions is homosexuality. Why would he mention that first? There might be a couple of reasons for this. First, it is a logical illustration of that exchange of God's created order that he's been talking about. Second, at the time this was written, the Greek and Roman culture really exalted homosexuality, particularly a bit among uh, older men and adolescent boys. So um, there's some clear teaching that Paul is doing here. By contrast, the Jewish law had prohibited it, and culturally it was very forbidden. So I think there is also a sense in which by coming out of the gate with this, Paul is setting something up where perhaps the Jewish converts may be, as they're listening to him, sort of getting judgmental in their minds, as we all do when we hear about somebody else's wrongdoing, that's something that we don't have a problem with, and thinking, yeah, you Gentiles need to get your act together. You guys really, um, y'all need to listen in to this. We're good. But by the end of this whole discussion, by the end of this list of, um, of all of these sins here, it should have been super clear to every person that was listening that What I said before, we're all sinners in need of a savior. There's not one person probably that would be exempt from having um, struggled with a sin that's in this list, no matter who we are, no matter who they were or where they come from. A couple of other observations I wanna make here is that the placement and length of um, Paul's discussion about homosexuality here does not imply that it mean, he's thinking that it is a greater sin than others. It just took longer to make this illustration. Also, it is clear teaching about God's intention for sexual relationships. Okay. Pick back up with me in verse 28, and we're going to read 28 through 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And this is the list that I was saying, but by the end of it, we're all pretty clear in who we are. Uh, see, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, God allows those who refuse to worship him to do things their own way with some terrible consequences. Uh, Paul begins with this overarching sin of unrighteousness. He moves through behaviors that are wicked, vile, sinister, morally bankrupt. Again, I like uh, how Dr. Constable gave some helpful insight to me in this summary. He said, this speaks of a mind that is retrograde, worthless, useless, is unable to fulfill its natural functions as designed by God, confusing right and wrong. Okay, so... I 
noticed, and you may have it as well, that Paul begins this list in verse 29 with what we might consider the major sins. And when we're in that part of the list, it may be that many of the people in his original audience, and perhaps us too, had a feeling of, you know what, I'm all right, I'm not so bad. I could have that too, because I'm not a murderer, and I'm not even malicious. But nobody gets off the hook. I haven't murdered anyone, but I have gossiped. I haven't murdered anyone, but I was more disobedient to my parents, particularly in the later years of, um, as a teen, when I, one, knew better, and two, was plenty old enough to be held accountable for it, then I can count. And as an adult, I have been foolish. I have been faithless more times than I can count. And then we get to verse 32, which was, hard for me personally. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All these things from what we see as the nastiest and worst to those things that we excuse every day and might not even count as a sin provokes God's holy anger. And the end of 32 is what really got me when I was studying And I hate to say I hope you are uncomfortable with it, but I kind of hope you're uncomfortable with it too, unless you already had had a great conviction about this, because how many times have we done something like, let's say, or I have done something like, let's say, gossip, which takes two. So not only did I sin against a holy God, but I am drawing somebody else into that as well. How many times has somebody come up to me and said something like, I'm so mad at myself. I was super, I was just irritated and angry and short with a coworker, a spouse, a friend, a child. And I say, I know. Also, you're tired. Also, they'll get over it. Also, they're a jerk. You know, (laughs) instead of acknowledging that as sin and saying, "Um, I'll pray for you with that. I'm glad that God um, showed that to you. I struggle with that too. I'll walk alongside that with you. How many times have I done something like that because I didn't think it was all of that sinful myself? Or maybe because I didn't have enough courage to speak up when I did know it was wrong. Or maybe because I knew that they knew that I had done some of those things myself and I didn't feel like I had the right to um, speak truth into that area. When Jesus was asked about which commandment was the greatest. He answered in this way. Look with me at Matthew 22 on your verse sheet. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does it look like to love God this way? In part, it looks like trusting and obeying truth rather than pushing it away. And what does it look like to love your neighbor like this? In part, it looks like not doing or saying anything that makes it even easier than already is for each of us to sin against our holy God. I am giving this some real prayer and reflection and intentionality. I hope you will too. Paul's list of sins ensures that everybody understands their guilt before a holy God. This list is bad news. The good news is coming, and we will be very grateful for it when it gets here. Would you let 
the weight of these words and these truths do a good work in you? Would you let the truth that exchanging the glory of truth and for a lie um, and the misery it results in um, drive you toward holiness? If it does result in such misery, then don't do it. Work on this alongside me. Hold tight to God's truth. Hold tight to his glory. Do everything in your power to hold on to it. Let's look at the beginning of chapter two. The focus is going to shift from the sin of man to the wrath of God. And we're going to read verses one through five of chapter two. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, old man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I read something that said Romans chapter 1 reveals the um, right, unrighteousness of man and chapter 2 reveals the self-righteousness of man. Paul is speaking primarily in these verses to those Jewish Christians who were struggling with understanding that they too could fall under God's wrath. Um, there was a prevalent thought that because they were God's chosen people and because they had God's law and sort of ordered their lives around it, that they um, would not uh, ever fall under God's wrath. I think also in this conversation about judgment, he would have been talking to self-righteous Gentiles as well who maybe thought, hey, I did come out of this really sinful culture and I managed to um, find the Lord. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself too. So there, were, um, there was a good bit of judging going on uh, around Rome. That might be something we can relate to as well. Paul made a point in this paragraph above that uh, everyone is a sinner. We have driven that home. When we judge someone else for something we have also done, we bring reproach on ourselves. The act of judging someone else proves to ourselves and to the Lord that we know that thing is wrong, and then we do it. And so there's where that brings that condemnation on ourselves. Unless we think that it's okay to judge the Jewish Christians for judging the Gentiles, I'm gonna tell you, I can see why this was hard for them. If you think about everything we know about Jewish culture and the Old Testament, they were set apart, they were God's chosen people, they had been governed by God, God's holy law. God had always, um, often told them through the prophets that they were to um, exclude themselves from those sinful outside nations, that um, they were to live differently because those people um, were um, condemned. Um, so, 
I think we can relate to them. I think we can get where they're coming from. Uh, but there's still a big disconnect in their heart that they were just as wretched as the Gentiles standing next to them, and Paul is working with them to help them understand this. The Jews will not escape God's judgment based on their heritage. Again, if you think back to the Old Testament history, there were times that... Um, the Jews were very disobedient and unfaithful, had all kinds of idolatry going on. And in verse four, I think Paul is reminding them how often God showed them kindness and patience in their uh, disobedience, um, helping them see their own sinfulness and helping them try to respond with a gratitude and repentance and not to focus on the persons next to them, the sin of the person next to them. So this was written to a specific audience at a specific time. That audience is not us in this uh, particular thing, but we can learn much from it as well. This just echoed to me Jesus' words in Matthew 7 on your verse sheet. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that out is out of your brother's eye. All right, let's pick back up in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, and that's the Lord's glory and honor, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So if you look at this passage in isolation, um, it could lead us to believe that we're justified before God at the end of our lives for perhaps the sum of our good works. All good students of the Bible know that we can never take any one passage in isolation, but have to look at each one in light of the whole and what we know for sure in the whole of scripture is that we are not saved by works. Instead, our good works are evidence of faith and a lack of good works is an as a, as a evidence of a lack of saving faith, faith, which is why Paul is talking about this here. And while doing good does not save us, it is also clear in the whole of Scripture that God cares very much that out of a saving faith, righteousness would flow, good works would flow, the fruit of the Spirit would flow. So for the sake of time, I'd love for you to allow me to just explain verses 12 through 16. I will tell you in my own study, these were the hardest for me to understand. I did study, uh, read them about, I don't know, I don't 15 times before I finally thought, I just do not know what this means. I'm going to get some help here. Um, so you're in good company if you have to read this a lot. Um, if God's wrath in these verses is his holy hatred against all that is evil and his holy purpose is to ultimately destroy it, here's the great beauty. God's judgment of mankind is utterly faultless. Let me share this excellent explanation I read uh, explaining 12 through 16 by a theologian named Kent Hughes. With incredible discrimination, God judges those lacking his word by how well they live according to the sense of right and wrong in their hearts. God's judgment is so perfect that he takes into account one's moral perception in rendering judgment. To be sure, no one escapes condemnation. All fall short. 
None measure up to their own moral perceptions of right or wrong, let alone God's law. No one will ever be able to rise before God and declare that God has been unfair. His judgment is so precise that he takes into account the delicate moral perceptions of each person. There will be a day of judgment for everyone. We will stand before God and give account for our lives. But while the bad news is that all have sinned and have earned God's wrath, the day of judgment is not going to look the same for each of us. For those who suppress the truth and reject him throughout their whole lives, there will be fury on the day of judgment and they will bear the wrath that they have earned. But praise be that for Christ's followers, when we stand before God, we will be covered in the blood of Jesus who bore that wrath for us. Christians will not bear God's wrath, but we will give an account for our lives, including our inner lives and our inner thoughts that are known only to God. I think the Gospel of John speaks of this very clearly. Look with me on your verse sheet at John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ's death and resurrection in light of this, I so hope you will. If you are a Christ follower, rejoice, rejoice, because we will not have to suffer the wrath that we have earned. And out of gratitude for our salvation and our understanding of how much our good and our great God hates sin, fiercely pursue righteousness, fiercely pursue a life that embodies Psalm 48 on the bottom of your uh, outline. I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. Let's pray. God, you are so good, you are so holy, and you are so perfect, and we are so not, and you made a way for us, and I am so grateful. I know each of us is so grateful. I pray, God, that we would live every moment of our lives in light of that truth. I pray that it would be the driving force behind everything that we do. I pray that we would um, not ever take our salvation for granted, um, I pray that we would have tender hearts that uh, are repentant before you because of how great and good you are um, and because we understand who we are not. Lord, I pray that you would let the words um, in Romans just penetrate deeply into our hearts and do a good work in us. I pray that we would not look at this truth and then look away unchanged, but that we would be women after your own heart, um, women who pursue righteousness and holiness in your truth um, at all costs, God, understanding its value. I pray for your hand of blessing over each of these women today. Would you help us, Lord? We can never do this in our own strength, and we know it. So would you help us? I ask all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.